Hello, I'm Alejandra Bronfman, one of the hosts of New Books in Caribbean Studies. My guest today is Juanita de Beras, author of Reproducing the British Caribbean, Sex, Gender, and Population Politics After Slavery, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2014. This wonderfully engaging book considers the issues of health and reproduction in post-emancipation societies. As formerly enslaved people were reimagined as a working force, their capacity to reproduce became a political issue in surprising and fascinating ways. As a really important contribution to our understandings of late 19th and early 20th century British Caribbean history, this book helps us think about public health, social science, gender, motherhood, and many other things. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Juanita, thanks so much for being with me this afternoon. You're welcome. I'm very uh, happy to have this chance to talk about the book. So I like to begin by having people tell me a little bit about how they arrived where they are now. So can you tell us how you came to choose history and what brought you to this particular project? Oh, my gosh. Um, I chose history because... I love history. I think I chose history because in, in the, the reason that we all chose history as a as subject of academic study is just the subject I always found most fascinating that I always loved the most uh, when I was a student and an undergraduate. And just to to understand the past as just always the, the mystery and the the uh, unexpectedness of the past has always really excited me to try and understand that. And, I've, and since I've been um, uh, my graduate work, certainly as a PhD student, but since I finished my PhD student uh, studies, especially, I've been more and more interested in sort of institutional history and and and. The history of sort of colonial institutions and institutions generally. I mean, I, I work on the Caribbean, and I've been working on the Caribbean since I, I was a, a master's student, I guess. I started a project uh, with a professor I was working with at York on um, on the British Virgin Islands during the period of slavery, and found it very interesting. And then when I was thinking about a PhD topic, was pulled towards the Caribbean even more. And because as, as I told you, we were talking a couple of minutes ago, my um, half my family is, is West Indian Guyanese and, and Trinidadian and just grew up hearing stories about Guyana and the, and the Caribbean more generally, and just felt pulled towards wanting to understand that area of the world and that history more. And it just seemed yeah, to, just to pull me as a, as a subject for, uh, for my PhD, um, this particular book and, and this particular project, it, it it builds very much on my my first project on my uh, on my dissertation on my dissertation book, which focused on Guyana um, for some of the reasons I, I, I mentioned just a, a minute ago. But it also it focused on Georgetown, uh, which is the capital city of Guyana, and. I'm a, a person who I, I was born in Toronto. I spent much of my life in Toronto, so I'm very much a, a city person. So I'm fascinated by cities and how they function. And when I was thinking about PhD topics, I was just very interested in in the capital city of Guyana and Georgetown, and I wanted to understand how this particular colonial city how it worked, how this very multi-ethnic, multi-racial place functioned on the and, and the most banal level possible. So how did people uh, interact on the streets and in the marketplaces? I mean, it was those sorts of everyday sort of encounters that I found very interesting. 
And in the process of doing my research uh, for that particular project, I encountered something that was called the um, uh, British Guiana Baby Saving League, which is an organization found in, founded in the early 20th century to try to uh, uh, preserve the lives of infants to help them uh, survive infancy and, and grow to adulthood. And I was... I talked to, and I mentioned it briefly in the dissertation and in the dissertation book, but it was only after I had finished uh, that project and was thinking about a, uh, a new research direction that I realized I had a lot of questions about that organization. And it was in the process of trying to make sense of the, um, the Baby Saving League in Guyana and trying to understand how it operated uh, and trying to understand if there were similar kinds of comparable kinds of organizations elsewhere in the British Caribbean, that all of those questions really provided the genesis for this particular book. Um, I can go on at great length about the babysitting lead, but maybe, <laughs> we can maybe pause there to see if you have another question. Well, yeah, I do. I want to talk about the babysitting league because I also found that really fascinating. And I actually found some parallels with, some of the things that I uncovered in Cuba when I was doing research for my first book. So I, for I, sure. I really want to talk about that later. But first, let's. Um, I just wanted to ask some sort of broad framing questions sure. in terms of how you made the decisions about the form and the, and the shape of the book, because I found it very effective and very compelling in a lot of ways. So... Um, just to very basically, right, this is a study about post-emancipation society and, and post-emancipation studies are growing. There are more and more of them every year, which is yeah. wonderful for the field. So I was wondering what made you think about it, apart from the fascinating uh, baby-saving league, <laughs> yeah. um, what, what, um, what made you think that the, the perspective of sex and reproduction and population and the politics of that um, would be an effective way to do to to sort of investigate this period. Sure, um, that's a. I mean that that that's a really good question. That's a really good question. As I mean, as I was starting to think about this project, I mean, so it was the, the Guyanese babysitting me that gave me a way into it. But I very quickly, when I was reading other secondary sources initially, I discovered that there were similar kinds of uh, concerns being expressed in other parts of the world and specifically other British Caribbean colonies. And the first point of comparison I found was Barbados, which is such an interesting is such an interesting point of comparison because it's a very, very different kind of colony, geographically much smaller, uh, with a, a, very, a very densely populated colony. And in this place, the ideas, sort of the discourse around population and population growth um, had some striking similarities to what I saw in Guyana, but also some very important differences. And it was just reading, starting to read the, the Barbadian material that made me realize, first of all, that I had to take a comparative perspective. So that this, my so my first book was just on one colony, and I realized very early on into this project that I didn't want to just write a single colony study. I wanted to do a comparative project, and I wanted to because I wanted to understand 
some of the the reasons for the differences and the similarities that I was seeing in this region, this single imperial region, but all distinct colonies with their own different forms of government and their own distinct relationships with with the metropole, with Great Britain. So so the, the, the project had to be comparative, but... And I realized very, very early on as I was reading the sources, sort of, you know, very generally interested in the question of these sort of colonial institutions and sort of questions around um, uh, history of public health and public health policies in this period. I realized that the sources I was finding, and for the most part, official sources produced in the center of empire, so by imperial officials, but also by colonial physicians, colonial uh, officials as well, were fascinated by the questions, by the intersection of sex and reproduction, that almost everything that I was reading, the kind of sources I was reading, these uh, individuals kept coming back to these issues. And so it was just my attempt to make sense of what I was seeing in the sources that sort of led me in the analytical direction in which I went. And then I was, as I was reading sort of outside the Caribbean, specifically, I was reading a lot of uh, U.S. material at, at this point, African, African-American um, material and British imperial material. And I realized that these questions were not just British Caribbean questions, but these were much broader questions. And so this concern about population and population growth and reproduction um, was something that was expressed in many different places in the late 19th and early 20th century for different kinds of reasons. And that sort of gave me... um, gave me some questions, gave me a bit of a framework to think about what I was finding in, in the Caribbean. So you mentioned earlier that you that you wanted to do a comparative study, which is yeah. really interesting and really difficult, um, yes. having also tried to do that. So, <laughs> yes. um, and the, the, I'm interested in how you chose your places. You talked about Barbados and Guyana, but you also have Jamaica in the mix. And then how did you decide to organize the book? It's organized thematically rather than taking the islands one at a time. And so I'm I'm wondering about the process of that, of that organization. That was hard. Um, This is my first real comparative project and boy, it was hard. (laughs) It was very satisfying and I'm very happy that I took this approach, but it was a lot more complicated organizationally than I had anticipated. And I, from the beginning, I didn't want to make it colony by colony because I've read some comparative projects that are sort of organized geographically and they tend points in the argument can be a little repetitive. So I wanted to find significant themes, points of difference, points of similarity, and focus on those themes. And so it was my and so the book was sort of organized around some of these themes that uh, that I identified as significant to all of these places. And I have to admit, um, the 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 outside reviewers for UNC who published the book and uh, and the senior editor uh, um, Elaine Mailer were fantastic. Um, the first version of the book I gave them 
was was good. They were interested in it, but they identified a lot of the problems with how I had organized it because of the comparative approach. And the and the and the reviewers and Elaine gave me a lot of really good practical suggestions about making sure that the argument wasn't repetitive and et cetera, et cetera. And that all came down to the challenges of of doing this and doing a, a comparative project. I chose the um, this colonies. I chose Guyana because because I know so much about Guyana, I have so much material. And Guyana was a jumping off point for me, Barbados, because it was such a dramatic point of comparison with Guyana. And then Jamaica, because Jamaica is, in the eyes of uh, officials, uh, contemporary officials, British officials especially, and in the eyes of a lot of people today who don't know much about the Anglophone Caribbean, Jamaica really kind of represents the Anglophone Caribbean. And it's it's of great interest to people who read history, who, are, who want to read about the Caribbean, but also in the period that I was talking about for a lot of colonial officials, and especially at around the time when slavery ends, which is sort of when the book starts, Jamaica and what was happening in Jamaica really seemed to sum up the Caribbean in the eyes of these imperial officials. And so, so many policies that we see in this period were sort of constructed with Jamaica in mind. And so because it was the biggest island, the most populous island in the British Caribbean, because it was so important in the eyes of imperial officials, Jamaica just seemed like it had to, it, it had to be part of my comparison. Right. It's often the biggest, it is the biggest island. And so a lot of things yeah. end up there or sure. begin there. So one one last big question before we get to the chapters. Um, so you, you talk a lot about colonial officials and their aims, um, but really a lot of the action is driven by what you call a multi-ethnic group of Caribbean men and women. Um, and so I'm wondering how you came to that choice. And did you think going in that those would be the main actors of this story, of these stories? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting question. And so, you know, if I had to identify two of the major um, organizational challenges and sort of analytical challenges I faced in the book, one was the fact that it was an imperative project. The other was to try and find that balance. All along, I was, I'm not, I don't consider myself an imperial historian. I consider myself a colonial historian, that is a Caribbean historian, someone who stands in the Caribbean and looks out at the world. But because these are colonies, I think we always have to be aware of that imperial context and the actions of officials uh, based in Britain and, in fact, in other places of the empire. And so I, I, I wanted, I needed to find a balance between that. I, I was my main interest. Actually, this project initially. In part, it came out of my, my work on doctors, on uh, British Caribbean physicians, mostly Afro and, and uh, Indo-West Indian physicians. And so they were some of the first um, Caribbean men uh, whose sources I found. And so a lot of their ideas, their concerns really sort of propelled many of them, uh, the questions that, that I was exploring in this book. I wanted to think about Caribbean women, the midwives. So I wanted to think about Caribbean people themselves and in, in all of, because it is a very, very, uh, very diverse region. And I wanted to think about the significance of that uh, ethnic and racial diversity. And I wanted to think about the actions of Caribbean people as kind of driving history. But at the other, on the other hand, these are colonies and policies that were constructed or that um, emerged in these colonies emerged very much in, not imposed by the Imperial Center, but in 
out of a series of exchanges with officials in, in the metropole in Britain itself. So I, I, in organizing the book and in, uh, in analyzing the, the sources, I wanted to think about that. And actually my main, uh, my main sort of organizational challenge was the first two chapters of the book really focus on British policies. And I thought that the, and imperial policies, and I thought that maybe the third chapter should do that as well. But I thought, no, at some point I have to come back to the Caribbean and I have to really sort of focus on the stories of Caribbean people that, um, Caribbean people themselves. And so that's why the third chapter was the midwife chapter, because I was feeling increasingly uncomfortable. I was feeling increasingly like it was becoming a bit of an imperial history, and I, I didn't want that. So I was trying to, just in terms of organizing the chapters, trying to make sure that the structure of the book reflected my desire to emphasize the role of Caribbean people while acknowledging the importance of imperial policies. Right. So, um, so diving into, into chapter one, the, the, the first thing that comes up and really what frames the whole book is this concern about underpopulation in the immediate post-emancipation period. So the idea is that we need more workers. They're not reproducing quickly enough, or maybe there's high infant mortality um, what are we going to do, right? This is from the colonial yeah. officials' perspective, of course. Sure. And that was actually really surprising to me as a lot of the literature on this kind of stuff focuses on later periods and fears of overpopulation, right? I'm thinking sure. of Laura Briggs' work and yeah. uh, Nicole Bourbonnet um, and people like that. So th- that was really a uh, surprise to me, and I'm wondering if it was as as unexpected to you. Um. I mean, not really. I mean, I I read Laura Briggs's book, of course, and 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 Nicole's uh, and part of some of Nicole's earlier work um, when I was starting to work through my own material. So I was very much aware of what they were talking about in the 20th century and especially from the 1930s on. But because I was very familiar with, I mean, I'm, I work on the post-slavery period, but I was very familiar with the the, the slavery material, some the scholarship. Um, so I was aware that uh, population concerns and, and these worries about underpopulations and shrinking populations was uh, was very important in this in this early period until I really started to dive into the um, until I really started to dig into the the primary sources, I wasn't quite as aware how significant it was as a factor uh, in the uh, abolitionist campaigns and how central it was to imperial concerns around the end of slavery itself. And I found that very, very interesting. And and, and in, in part, I mean, I wanted to, as I said, I'm, I'm not a historian of slavery, but as I was trying to think about where these late 19th century concerns about shrinking populations and so on, where that came from, I kept feeling like I had to go back further and further in time and then finally ended up looking at the abolitionist debates and saw that that's where these concerns were expressed. And so late 19th and early 20th century concerns about the size of populations in the British Caribbean really do have their roots in those late slave era uh, debates and discussions. That's not something that we hear about very often. So it was very interesting to me. Okay. Um, so uh, this next question is kind of methodological, right? One of the, one of the things I really liked about this book was the way you talk about 
um, the emergence of social scientific tools. So the origins mm-hmm. of the idea of taxation, the origins of the idea of sure. the census, um, how to count people if we're going to make all of yeah. these claims, how are we going to count people? How are we going to you know, make these numbers um, real? And so I guess my question is the numbers, it, it's very clear from the book that the numbers are always political. There's always a sure. agenda there. So how easy... Or did you even try to work with the numbers themselves? I mean, did you ever try or did you get an actual sense of the the decline or increases in population? Or was that just not your concern? Do you see what I'm saying? No, no, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, for me, and I, I hesitate to say this because I'm sure somebody's going to hit me over the head, but I mean, numbers, numbers are discourse, right? Mm-hmm. Numbers... Numbers serve, they serve many ends. And just like language or, or text, things that we more conventionally think of as discourse, reflect uh, reflect a kind of historical reality. You really have to dig into those sources to try and understand what they're telling you about, what they're telling you about people's ideas and what they tell you about the past. And so my approach to numbers I take the same approach to numbers. Um, and it's just, and it was really interesting to me because, you know, there's been uh, a fair amount of scholarship in which historians sometimes from the Caribbean will really sort of quote these numbers very unproblematically, right? They won't, they won't really sort of critique them. Right. And then when you really look at how these numbers were arrived at, well, officials say, well, you know, we haven't done any, we haven't done a census in like 50 years. We think there's probably, you know, there's probably X number of people, but we could be wrong. So it, it I mean, given how, how uncertain um, the methods of counting populations were in this period and the fact that, and the inconsistencies uh, among the different colonies that they had different methods of counting the population, I think it's probably, I think it's impossible to arrive at a completely accurate count of the population. I mean, some historians like Barry Higman, for example, his, his work on, on Jamaica, and he's worked extensively with the, I think, the 1844 census, and his work is fantastic, right? So he and a few other um, historians who are uh, numerically inclined have really digged into those census reports and compared them with other kind of reports and have come to conclusions that they feel pretty comfortable with about how, what, uh, what, uh, how many people lived in these colonies and probably what the mortality rates were. And so I tended to rely on those historians who've really done an awful lot of that, uh, an awful lot of that very complicated work. Um, but, and, and so it, because it, those, because those numbers are important, right? They give you, they give you uh, a bit of a basis uh, to argue from. But for me, they're, they're more interesting as, rep- as reflections of what contemporaries thought. And I was just so fascinated to see the numbers that they, that contemporaries would, uh, would, um, would note. And then what those numbers actually meant to them. Because those numbers, whether accurate or not, drove policy. And that's the and that's a really interesting question. I mean, that's a really interesting subject for me. I, mean, I said at the beginning, I'm interested in institutions and policies. These policies and institutions were based on these numbers, accurate or inaccurate. That was the basis for them. 
Yeah, I thought you did a really nice job of making that point, but then also really suggesting that in the post-emancipation moment, there were issues with infant mortality and there were issues with health and there were issues with, you know, Sure. All of those kinds of things, right? So yeah, no, uh, I mean, there, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's reality there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not all, you know, I'm not one of those historians who says it's all discourse. No, you know, people lived and they died and they suffered and they cried and they loved. I mean, we know that we know a lot about the past. Many things we don't know because of the nature and the incomplete and the incomplete nature of the sources and the problematic nature of the sources, but a lot of stuff we do know. And and the sources are pretty clear that all the sources are pretty clear that there were very high rates of infant mortality, that many, many babies died very, very young, and that was a huge tragedy for men and women and just everyone living in these societies. But also that it was a political issue. Mm-hmm. And so that's that was also one of the challenges in the book to think about that those personal tragedies as something that drove colonial and imperial policy and institutions um, to my interest was in the policies and the institutions and the role in Caribbean and the role of Caribbean men and women and British men and women in constructing those. But I never wanted to forget that these were individual tragedies of individual men and women in the past and to always keep that in my mind, like the, the, you know, the, the, the personal element of that. Absolutely. And that comes through. Um, so it, it actually relates to the, the thing that I wanted to talk to you about next, which was the, the coincidence in the book, which is very clear uh, of the transition to freedom and the revolution in public health, right? Sure. In a lot of places you yeah. read about the emergence of public health and or you read about the transition to freedom, but but they haven't really been put together in this way. And I found that um, I found that really fascinating. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about more about how those are related, because I don't think that you're arguing that they're just kind of a coincidence that they occur together. Yeah, um, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, that. Uh, that that coincidence in timing of these events, I think, is absolutely fascinating. And and when I, I mean, I I knew, of course, that these things were happening at the same time. But I, until I was really sort of digging into the book, I hadn't really thought about their relationship to each other and how they, in fact, informed each other. And it seemed to me very much that these new medical, these new scientific ideas, this uh, revolution in, in health and public health really shaped a lot of the, the discourse um, about, the, about the transition to freedom in the British Caribbean uh, and, and I would argue in, in other post-slavery territories and that it really, that, that these that these medical ideas really influenced some of the policies that we see, the institutional policies that we see in in the post-slavery period. So that this so-called revolution in in health, yeah, it, it, it shaped the transition to freedom. Um, And I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's not something I think that that's been, that's been really argued quite as that I've seen many other historians argue in the Caribbean. But I think that, I think that that coincidence and that relationship is absolutely fundamental that we cannot understand the post-slavery moment that we cannot understand the transition to freedom without, without thinking about 
these new medical ideas um, and these new ideas about health and, and disease and the causation of disease. And what that all had to do with this this concern in the British Caribbean and by imperial officials about the size of populations and shrinking populations in this part of the world. And then in turn, what that meant for the economic survival of these areas. And that was, um, I mean, something I'm not an economic historian, but at some point when I was working on the book, I realized I have to, (laughs) I have to think about the colonial economy because these questions about health and, uh, and, and the uh, disease and the causes of disease and shrinking populations these are their political questions, but they're also economic questions. And so I found myself digging into all sorts of history, uh, economic history scholarship, uh, much to my surprise, much to my surprise. We all get there eventually. Yeah, I think we have to. <laughs> um, so, so the, the presence of, of middle-class reformers, Caribbean people, in this um, context was really quite important, um, it seems. And so I'm wondering the extent to which they were driving this and and the ways that their stakes were different from those of colonial officials. Sure. Um, That's that's really important. And as I was in the first year's, gosh, because it was a while I was working on the book, but the first little while I was working on it, I was teaching uh, a graduate course at McMaster on... um, on on gender uh, in the African diaspora, and we were reading a lot of the U.S. the U.S. the U.S. literature, especially um, Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore's book, um, and her book was so in, so inspirational um, and so influential for me. I was so fascinated about the the material that she found about African-American female philanthropists and male philanthropists, their, uh, their activities with uh, poor or less fortunate members uh, of the African-American community. And I was just in, in the political nature of their philanthropy. And, and I was very interested in, in what she was able to discover in the context of the U S. And so as I was reading the Caribbean material, thinking very much about some of her discoveries and seeing, can I find things like that for the Caribbean? And, and to my delight, I mean, we don't, sources are very, very different for the Caribbean than they are from, from uh, the U S from, than they are for the U S of course. But I was really pleased uh, at some of the material that I was able to find um, that it, it very, you know, nicely shows the role of Caribbean men and women, black and colored and white, and their role as as philanthropists. I mean, there have been a number of really good Caribbean historians who've who've done a, a lot of the, the background work on this, identified uh, these organizations. And, and what I was trying to do was to try to look at these organizations in a different way to think about them as sort of the precursors to the uh, baby-saving leagues and think about the baby-saving leagues themselves and these sort of early 20th century um, iterations of these philanthropic organizations. Yeah, so, so let's talk about midwives Okay. <laughs> um, uh, in most settings, it seems like there are there's this conflict between the midwives or the grannies, you call them. I love that term. Yeah. Um, and the kind of official medical establishment, and mm-hmm. the the same conflict occurs here. But you argue that the um, the efforts to train midwives and to kind of officialize them really doesn't work. It's undermined. 
um, by um, by physicians, by mothers, and by midwives themselves. And so I'm wondering if this is if you're pointing to here, if you're pointing to the limits of the colonial state, um, as 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 this is sort of the the last. It, the limits that it, that it could uh, arrive to, and it just it, its projects were just not not successful. Um, yes, and yes, and no. Actually, I mean this this is one of my my favorite chapters, and it was one of the first ones that I I, I really worked up and and, and wrote. Um, yeah, it was the first one that that really took shape, and I found it so interesting to work on for uh, a number of reasons. First of all, because I saw so many similarities with um, between the British Caribbean and other parts of the British Empire, and actually with with the U.S. context, so these conflicts between uh, physicians and traditional midwives, and the and the, rep, the negative representations of traditional midwives as um, you know as 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 causing infant deaths, as, uh, as unclean, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what was fascinating to me is how pervasive these kinds of uh, the, the, these representations are. I mean, you, you see them in most places. So that was really interesting to me. But something else, and, and of course, I mean, you're quite right. Um, I mean, you're quite right. I mean, this chapter does show the limits of um, imperial policies and, and, and attempts to eradicate the midwives. Uh, it show, and it shows that for very pragmatic reasons, cost, accessibility, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the most fascinating things I found when I was working on this chapter was my discovery of the efforts of uh, imperial and colonial officials to try to incorporate the grannies into the world of colonial medicine and into sort of official midwifery, and which was sort of, and not sort of, but Represented, I thought, a, 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 an admission, a ta- an admission of defeat by these officials that the, they're essentially saying these traditional midwives aren't going to go away. Local women, poor women, are still going to use them for all kinds of pragmatic and and cultural reasons. We have to work with them, right? So, in a way, it, it I just I found that so interesting. Sort of a victory by the midwives over you know, imperial officialdom and, and a recognition by these officials that, that we can't defeat these women. And so we have to, we have to, we have to find a way to recognize their skills and bring them into the system. And, and that was one of the more unexpected findings um, in, in, when I was researching this chapter and, I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's, and, and one thing that I was trying to do in this chapter was to show the, I mean, the different tensions at play and, and all of the different, uh, all of the different rivalries and, and the different pressures. And so rivalries and conflict between physicians and, and, um, and formally trained midwives and, and with the grannies and to try and show also the role of, poor non-white women themselves who for a a whole range of reasons chose still use the granny midwives but use use formally trained midwives as well and to try and and to try and emphasize the complexity of to try and emphasize the the 
the, the myriad factors that limited the choices of poor women to, because sometimes some of those, um, some scholars who talk about midwifery and the history of midwifery sort of, I mean, I don't know so much anymore, but used to kind of come at it from uh, maybe a more politicized perspective that, you know, formal uh, granny midwives, traditional midwives are, I don't know, the better choice for women uh, closer to, you know, uh, closer to um, uh, closer to the concerns of poor women. Right. And what I was trying to do in this chapter was to think about the various factors that shaped women's abilities to choose and the kinds of decisions that poor women made. So could they get to a hospital? Could they afford a traditionally trained midwife? If they could, did they want to use her? Um, Was she too culturally distant from her? And to try to think about all of the various factors that were relevant uh, in, in the decision-making process of, of poor women. Yeah, it's it's a really complicated when you describe it that way. It's a really complex set of issues, um, and it also it, I think it sort of highlights the the hybridity of these kinds of systems, right? Where there's sure. not one choice or two choices, but many different kinds of dimensions and aspects to them, and people kind of accommodating and and changing um, according to sort of what's out there and what the yeah. constraints are. Yeah, I mean that's what I that's what I wanted to do to try to to relay that complexity um, to show that there wasn't just one reason why people behaved in the the way that they did, but there are multiple reasons, and to try to 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 follow each one of those and and to try and understand some of the reasons behind them. That was a, a fascinating chapter to work on, and that was actually one chapter in particular that I presented at a number of conferences and I presented some of it at um, a sort of a Skype conference um, in the UK a couple of years ago. And it was some comments by David Arnold about traditional midwives, what their role was that really prompted me to think about some of these questions in a very, very serious way. And so, so much of what I finally concluded about midwives uh, owes a great deal to his comments and to and, and to some of the other participants in, the, in that conference a few years ago. So that's one chapter where I can I can point to some of the um, conclusions that I draw and I can say, yeah, I remember X talked talk to me about so-and-so and really helped me think through that material. So that was a, that was a, a, a nice chapter for me to remember because I can remember all of the decisions, all the decisions that I made, and why I made them, and how I thought about this stuff. It is really interesting to to actually talk to somebody about this this kind of thing, and to think about work as a kind of collective effort, right? And yeah. you do you have these moments in in the writing that you do where you think, oh yeah, that's because so and so asked me a question, or so and so sent me a source, and it yeah. changed everything, right? Yeah, no, it is wonderful, and it's and it's nice to. And I was actually just rereading the book um, today, so because it's been a, a while that I've looked at it, and in preparation for this, I was rereading it, instead of skimming through it a bit and finding places. Oh, I remember when I wrote that. I remember what I was thinking about it. So and so mentioned X to me, and it was—it's just—it's just nice to remember the 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 origins of, of of our thought process and and where those conclusions come from, and to remember we work by ourselves as as historians for the most part, but you know, but we always build on the work of others, right? right. What we read and who we talk to, so 
it's nice to acknowledge that. Right. And when you're when what you're doing sort of sparks a kind of reaction, that's also sure. very yeah. <laughs> satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so baby saving leagues. Okay. Um, <laughs> maybe you can just t- uh, talk a little bit about them for people who do, who haven't read the book and who don't know what a baby saving league is. Okay. Um, so that was, as, as I said at the beginning, I mean, that was trying to understand the Guyanese baby saving league really was the genesis of the book and baby saving leagues are these organizations that we see in many places in Canada, the United States and in, in, in the UK, um, in the Caribbean, other, other colonies. And you mentioned in Cuba, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So places in Latin America as well, but we see in the early 20th century organizations for the most part, um, uh, led by or organized by, um, men and women, often mostly women, uh, middle-class or elite women who are interested in philanthropy and who organize these, um, these leagues or these groups to try to uh, teach poor women uh, the best way, so the most modern way in contemporary terms, how to, uh, how to rear their children so that more children could survive. And so these were a response to early 20th, late 19th and early 20th century concerns about shrinking populations, which were not just expressed in the British Caribbean, but we see, um, we see these concerns expressed in uh, many places uh, globally in the early 20th century. And these organizations were one response to this problem, very much sort of uh, elite slash middle-class led philanthropic organizations. But they're also in many places uh, supported by the state. And so that's the case in some places in, in the British Caribbean um, because the state governments, colonial governments and governments elsewhere recognized um an interest in these organizations because they believe that that, that they would have a, a positive effect. So in the um, in the the Cuban case, I guess what I found was the were these baby contests, which you which you also sure. mentioned, yeah, beautiful baby contests, yeah, and they had this kind of eugenic cast, right? The kind of soft eugenics that Nancy Stepan talks about, yeah. of environmental eugenics, um, the idea that you can you know improve a race by improving sure. its environment and surroundings. And so I was wondering if, if the eugenics arguments come into those at all. Sure. I mean, when you see, because I read Nancy Stefan's work um, and so, and, and some of the other Latin American work and, and the Cuban work. And so I was, at, I was looking for eugenics. I was looking for eugenics in the British Caribbean mm. and I didn't find um, the kind of explicit, um, discussions of the sort of, I guess, hard eugenics that you see in some places in this period, but very much these sort of um, uh, concerns that you see in Britain in this period, which is a different kind of eugenicist language about the survival of the race, the survival of the population, and what should be done to facilitate uh, to facilitate infant survival and 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 growth and therefore the survival and flourishing of the race and so the kinds of policies that were put in place that were advocated by um, these baby saving leagues but also by government officials public health doctors and 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 uh, state employed midwives and so on to encourage um, to, to make the the environment in which a, an infant was reared uh, as hygienic as possible to fix the physical environment to um, 
and try to encourage more parents to marry, to uh, uh, improve the sort of the moral environment, I guess, out of the the idea, based on the idea that that would um, see more children, more infants survive. Just uh, uh, try to teach or show um, poor women uh, the best ways to feed their infants and, and so on and so on. So various kinds of social moral, uh, nutritional policies advocated by these philanthropic groups, but also by the state as well, all with the same goal to ensure the survival of infants and therefore the survival of the race. And so very much, so these very much had, um, uh, were informed by eugenicist concerns of the time, um, and you see the sort of the soft eugenicist language, but with very few except. I I have a a couple of examples, but just a handful of examples I found uh, in which I saw colonial officials and and some physicians talking in sort of the harder eugenic terms about the merits of allowing um, sickly infants to die as being... um, is to to help to uh, for the betterment of society. I mean, I, I saw and I, I discussed some of those examples in the book, but and they are um, distressing to read. And but what is striking is, in comparison to other places that I uh, sort of other uh, other territories in this period, they, that I didn't see that many examples of those they were there and they were important and as i say distressing to read but they are outnumbered by a different kind of um different a different kind of discourse so very much the on the soft eugenics side of things yeah 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 no for sure so so by the end of the book there is um there is a transformation right so suddenly um there are more worries about overpopulation than underpopulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm wondering how you account for this transformation. Um, I mean, that's another place where um, my, where my, um, my, my use of numbers um, pl- plays into my analysis. So what seems to, what seems that is happening by the, like by the mid 1920s and late twenties and certainly by the thirties, Populations really were increasing. Uh, death rates were falling. Um, and so most historians, all historians who work on this period in the British Caribbean acknowledge this. Uh, contemporaries acknowledge this. But as I say this, I feel I also have to say that most places in the British Caribbean like they had their, you know, by the mid 1930s, their last census was like in 1921, right? Mm. So they had gone like 10 or no longer than that. My gosh, like 1911 in some cases. So they had gone like quite a long time without an official population count. And so, so historians and and social scientists, sort of the the first generation of social scientists working in the in the 30s and especially in the 40s, argue that. We do see populations starting to increase in this period because mortality rates really were falling and birth rates were going up, um, and so they're they're pretty they're they're pretty certain about that. But then I just, as as someone who 
read census reports with a sort of a jaundice <laughs> with a jaundice eye, I feel like I have to say yes, but you know, there really hadn't been a, a census for 20 years. And so a lot of the evidence for this is anecdotal, right? But I think, you know, with pushing aside all of those caveats in my kind of, you know, irritating my historian kind of way, um, we can push those aside and say, yes, population was growing. <laughs> Because death rates, mortality rates were falling, um, and there's been you know some some scholarship that that looks at some of the reasons for that. I mean, James Riley argues that. Um, and it is really interesting work on Jamaica in the 20th century. I mean, he argues that the public public health education campaigns really were paying off. Um, I mean, there's different interpretations for this, but yes, I mean, by the 1930s, it's this really dramatic. Uh, and I just think really dramatic uh, change uh, in emphasis from this early 20th century focus on shrinking populations and, and the decline of the population to the 1930s and the Moyne Commission, which is this um, uh, British inquiry into the causes of um, uh, uh protests in the mid-1930s that happened throughout the British Caribbean. And so the, and it's called the Moyne Commission, it's the West India Royal Commission, but the shorthand version for Caribbeanists is the Moyne Commission because it's named after, uh, we call it after Lord Moyne, who, who was the, the, um, the head of the, the head of the inquiry. And the Moyne Commission, these, uh, the Moyne Commission officials were obsessed by what they saw as overpopulation in the Caribbean, the fact that the population was growing madly out of control and that that was going to lead to all kinds of social and political calamities. And so for me to read the Moyne Commission report and and the testimony and and, uh, the commissioner's conclusions, reading it while I was still thinking about the discussions from the 1910s and the early 20th century about underpopulation and shrinking populations was the contrast was so stark. It was just really stark. But what was so fascinating uh, was the similarities in the repre- and in these official representations of, of poor West Indians as they're represented, uh, their sexual behavior and their family forms were still represented as part of the problem and the cause of overpopulation, just that it, as it had been seen as the cause of shrinking populations in the early 20th century. So it was fascinating for me to see the differences between the 1930s and the early 20th century, but also to see some of the similarities, the, the discursive similarities. Right, it's fascinating that the same causes suddenly lead to do really, really, really yeah. different outcomes, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it was great. I mean, uh, the, more, the West India Royal Commission is this fascinating, fascinating document and... and um, Historians had who, of the Anglophone Caribbean who had worked on this report because it came out of it was produced as an attempt to make sense of labor protests and political protests. A lot of historians have sort of looked at it as a political document and what it, what it told us about labor relations and politics in this period. But increasingly, social historians like me and like Lara Putnam and uh, Nicole Bourbonnet are using this are using this report to try to understand social attitudes and cultural attitudes of this period. And this document is just rich, rich with that kind of material. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Um, and I, I'm wondering, even in the transformation, even in the shift from sort of underpopulation to overpopulation, did some of those programs and institutions that were put in place, did they, did they, did they remain? Was there a kind of legacy of all of these years of efforts to increase the population? Yes, there were. And so that's also one of the 
um, the, the interesting developments or one of the interesting consequences of the of the early period that I look at at the book. So these, the babysitting leagues become an, an infant welfare uh, clinics and maternal el- maternal education campaigns that were developed in the early 20th century in this kind of piecemeal fashion, um, organized and staffed by local philanthropists with, with some involvement of the state by the the late 20s and certainly by the early 1930s, they become fairly ubiquitous is too strong, but they become much more extensive and they really do provide a basis for, I think, um, uh, the the social welfare programs that you see uh, after the war, I mean, in the 1940s. And so they really are built on these early 20th century, these early 20th centuries or these early 20th century organizations. It's really fascinating to see those continuities. Yeah, no, I think so. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, so the book ends, I mean, I end with the the West India Royal Commission and and the riots and the Moine Commission of the 1930s. But I think, I mean, and Nicole Bourmonet's book, which should be out, I don't know, within the next year. I mean, she talks about um, uh, population, uh, population control policies sort of in the 1930s, but especially the 1940s and after. And and that period sort of after the Second World War, that's when you see a much more extensive emergence of these social welfare institutions built on these early 20th, early 20th century institutions that I talk about in the book, but they grow uh, quite significantly after the war. And I think that that would be that could be the next book. I don't know. (laughs) I think that would be something really interesting really interesting to look at. Absolutely. So we've taken up a lot of your time. I have one last question for you. I'm just wondering if there's any implications of all of these kinds of debates and all of these sorts of conflicts and and issues in the Caribbean today. Are any of these debates being revisited or repeated? Um, Do you see anything, any any of the uh, lasting legacies? Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think, I mean, some of the, I mean, some of the debates that I see as continuing to be relevant, not only in the Caribbean, but in other places, in this sort of uh, easy tendency by politicians to castigate poor people for um, using state-provided medical resources and to, and, and to try to limit poor people's access to 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 medical resources and i mean that's a you know that's uh those were concerns that were expressed in the 19th century in the caribbean in the immediate in the immediate post-emancipation period continued to be expressed in the early 20th century but they're still expressed today i mean you, you hear it in canada you hear it in in other countries you hear it in the caribbean in which poor people are condemned for uh for being as being lazy for not working, their poverty is seen as their fault, uh, and they are condemned for uh, taking advantage of, of, of state resources uh, in a way that's that's so unjust and that doesn't acknowledge the the, the consequences of the consequences of poverty. Um, and yeah, so I mean that's I mean that's one of the that's one of the things. Um, that, that that's one of the elements that I see as continuing to resonate, continuing to resonate today. Yeah, I think the book really helps to contextualize a lot of those debates and discourses. Yeah. 
Um, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks a lot for talking to me today. Oh, you're welcome. I really enjoyed it as well. It's always fun to talk about the book. Um, yeah. So thank you very much for your interest and the great questions. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman, and I hope you can join me next time.